culture isn't measurable, it's meaningful. <laughs> so it's become a chemistry lesson. This is great. I'm it's looking so, at it right now. What? Welcome to Leadership Decanted, where we engage with the latest thinking on all things leadership, and we keep the conversation going over a nice bottle of wine. Hey, Paul. KG, another day. I know, and it is a beautiful day outside, and I am so excited. One, to be with you hanging out again. Oh, very kind. Two, to have a great bottle of wine on oh, hand. Yes. And three, because I ha- we have a guest um, who is phenomenal. And Fantastic. I cannot wait to chat with him. Well, I'm really excited because... As you know, today is the very first time I meet this guest, so I'm, <laughs> I'm really psyched. Uh, I'm really keen to see, uh, you know, what's he going to bring to the yes, table, yes. really? Is he uh, going to step up? It's going to be amazing. So <laughs> all of you listeners, do not deviate after the wine because um, our guest is going to be one of the best. All right. Guaranteed. Oh, oh gee, pressure's on now. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> Just a little. Fantastic. So do you want to tell us what we have today to drink? Yes. Oh, look, once again, care of Annandale Cellars. That's acellars.com.au. A-C-E-L-L-A-R-S.com.au. Our good friends at Annandale Cellars, including Chris and Peter. And Peter. And Peter. Yes. That's right. They have given us a most unusual white wine. Now, it may not be unusual to some, but it's very unusual to me. Yeah. It's called a Picpoul de Pinay. Wow, that's a mouthful already. Isn't it? Picpoul apparently translates roughly to something like a sting of the lips mm-hmm. or a sting on the lips. Yeah. Supposedly because it's really high in acid and it has that kind of little sort of sherbety, you know, tingly oh. thing, right? So south of France. Like it, like it. And Apparently, it goes really, really well with oysters because it's grown near the sea, Mediterranean, warm climate, followed by a cool breeze in the evening, high acidity as it matures. So I imagine, I imagine, I don't know, but I imagine you get that high kind of citrusy, lemony, almost like a hybrid between like a Semillon and a Riesling and a Pinot Grigio also wow. blend into one. That's yeah. what my fantasy is. <laughs> That's what your mind tells That's you right. before That's you right. even taste it. This is great. So this is a Picpoul <laughs> de Pinay and I'm going to, we'll put this in the show notes in the description so people can kind of see it for themselves. By winemaker, by Racine is the one label. Yeah. And it's a 2022 Pig Paul de Pinay. Yeah. Well, with all of that description, I cannot wait to taste. So let's break it open. All right. Here we go. Here we go. Oh, so this is a Stelvin or a, yeah. or a screw top. Nice and easy, right? If I may. In glass. Here yes, yes. Oh, beautiful color. Mm. Now, for those paying really close attention, you may have noticed that we only poured two glasses. Now, I know that's a small thing, but we have our guests online this time. So we are going to taste and our guests will cheers (laughs) virtually. (laughs) Yes, that's right. It's one of those situations. (laughs) More for us. It is. That's what I say. It is a good thing. I mean, sorry, sorry, but yes, it is a good mm. thing. It is citrusy to the nose. It is a bit minerally. Oh, yeah. Very nice, though. Easy drinking. Mm. It's a perfect summer wine. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's almost like r- lemon rind. I'm getting citrus for sure. Yeah. So lemon, lime, kind of all in there, mixed in together. It's really nice. A little yeah. bit mineral. Very fruity, actually. Yeah, I love it. I was expecting it to be tangier. Yeah. But it's not. It's really kind of, it's a really nice balanced citrus. It's not over the top. No. And really not, clean. Not sweet, not anything. It's just kind of nice. And you can imagine this would go well with oysters. Even the saltiness of the oyster and the acid and the fruit of this would be 
perfect. Yes, yes. You're talking me into it. I think that's the next stop. Right? All right, let's go to the next. Right. <laughs> Some oysters. Yes. All right, well, well Slauncha. Cheers. So, KG, tell us, what wonderful person lies the other side of this Zoom call? Well, that is a great description, a wonderful person. So I have had the pleasure of running um, or crossing paths with Michael Henderson. Welcome, Michael. Who is our guest today. Thank you. And Michael, I know your title as a corporate anthropologist. And I say that with a question in my voice because... <laughs> Just a question, not, not skepticism <laughs> not, or disbelief? No, at all. Perhaps confusion? And, and because I have had an opportunity to be a part of some of Michael's trainings in the past and some of the work that he does, so uh, there is absolutely no skepticism for me, but... I think it would be great to just have Michael give us a little bit about what you do and, and what that means and all of those good yeah, things. Yeah, sounds fantastic. And before we do that, though, KJ, do you mind if I ask Michael? Yeah. Where does this call find you, Michael? I'm uh, First of all, thank you, gentlemen, for having me and delighted to be here. And hello to you both. Oh, um, the you. call finds me in a small uh, village called Matakana. Uh, which is in New Zealand, just about an hour north of Auckland. Ah, okay. It sounds great. also very exotic. It does very much. Well, I was just I was just thinking about you both actually because it's it is a vineyard sort of area and Ooh. has some wonderful beaches, um, lovely village with a lot of artisan and bakeries and cafes and so for Australians, what would it be like? Hunter Valley, but near the ocean. Nice, Lovely. nice. I, I'm imagining an on location next time we do this together. <laughs> <laughs> the Travelling Leadership Decanted Show. I, I I'm think up for it can it. happen, yes. <laughs> so tell us, Michael, tell us about what this is, corporate anthropology, what mm. you do. Sure, thank you. So corporate anthropology, maybe the best way to explain is unpack both the words. Yeah, uh, Corporate is large-scale business or uh, tend to extend that into organizations or sports teams or associations or government departments. And the anthropology, anthropology is a social science, just like psychology or sociology. Um, that I studied at university, so I have a degree in that. And anthropology is uh, a, a massive field, and it normally sort of falls into four kind of fundamental disciplines, but it's expanding rapidly, a little bit like medicine is, uh, where you can go and specialize in all sorts of areas. So there's an aspect of anthropology called social anthropology, and that focuses on the concept of culture and where culture comes from, how it forms, why there's so many different cultures all around the world. So why don't we all have a uniform culture everywhere? There's another branch of anthropology called linguistic anthropology, which uh, looks at why different languages kind of occurred over time. What are the constructs of those languages? What is the um, what's called the etymology of the words, which is the original meaning and history of the words and how they formed and what they meant and what they symbolize? There's a third area of anthropology, which is called physical anthropology, and that also includes archaeology, which is studying remains and fossils, etc., from previous times and cultures to try and figure out what, what was going on. And then the final area is what's called cognitive anthropology, which is looking at what's going on with the brain in terms of how the brain or the mind, if you want to kind of separate those two out, is involved in the curation of a culture. So what patterns emerge, what memories emerge, what meaning emerges, how does the brain process data and information uh, from the world around it to determine what is culture and how is culture kind of impacting and how do is the brain uh, evolving, for example, or has it evolved? And there's huge debate over that. And also just the, the leading edge of it, just doing some research right now, there's a leading edge of that, which is called quantum anthropology which is just like you get quantum physics or quantum mechanics. It's starting to look at the more meta aspects of being human that are referred to in many of the great traditions and religions around the world that start to look beyond just the physical experiences of being alive and starts to get into sort of the metaphysical and the 
elements that sit beyond day-to-day kind of activity. So it's quite a wide field. Wow. So of those, I um, specialized in social anthropology and in particular culture. My area of anthropology is kind of focused on understanding human beings as the curators of culture. So why do human beings create culture? Why have they always done that? Why is culture the predominant social structure that's used by people all around the world and has been for 60 or 1,000 years? Where does culture come from? How does it form? Who leads it? Who controls it? If it's being controlled, who owns it? Uh, how does it differentiate or evolve or why doesn't it in certain places? So it's quite a, um, a fascinating area of study. And although I spent time looking at uh, traditional cultures, I spent time in Africa and South America, um, kind of doing that, which if you're going to do anthropology, it's kind of like the dream is to get out and meet with uh, cultures that are not your own, obviously. Yeah. What I found was in between that traveling, I would end up going back into a environment in modern cities uh, because I needed funding. So in between my field trips and doing anthropological kind of field trips, I would run out of money or funding, but yes. <laughs> couldn't get any from <laughs> universities or governments. Yeah. So I'd go back to London, and uh, this was back in the early 80s, I'd sell advertising. I was a commission-only sales rep selling advertising to raise money to go back to Africa. And <laughs> it just kept striking me every time I went back to London. I'd be sitting in a sales environment looking at the sales culture and suddenly realized this was far more fascinating and toxic and chaotic and unstructured than sort of the tribes that I've been sort of spending time with. So it sort of struck me that there's something going on here that organizations, although they all have cultures and talk about cultures and describe cultures, it struck me that there was absolute naivety about what they were actually even talking about, that their level of understanding compared to what anthropology would go into was so limited that it actually was limiting the opportunities for people in those cultures to be fulfilled, happy, safe, recognized, included, all those good things. And at the same time, it limited the performance that the culture was able to provide to the business. And so I sort of went and did a bit of retraining and refocused the anthropology and sort of moved into corporate anthropology, which at the time was a whole new field. So there wasn't a lot of direct guidance on how to do it or what it entailed. But fundamentally, sort of uh, even from the early days, it fell into two kind of real areas. One was what was called external anthropology, where corporates would hire anthropologists to go and observe customer behavior. And famous ones were people like Xerox, the uh, the copying people, would hire anthropologists to go and watch people inside a business building using one of their new copy machines to see if the anthropologist could see how well they were using it, whether they were using all the features or just stuck to certain parts. And long story short, and it is a long story, so I won't bore you or your listeners with it, but if you've ever seen those green buttons on a fax machine or a copying machine, when you're ready to go and you hit the green button and yes, it sets up. I know them well. That, yeah, right. <laughs> that was a recommendation from anthropologists to Xerox because when the copiers first came out, these were new, very comprehensive, very complex machines that were basically replacing was it a stetnogram. I don't know if you remember those mm, purple stetnas, yeah. Yeah, you yeah sh- remember that? We're yeah, s- showing you see, always, always, always get that purple <laughs> ink on your fingers. That, that's it. Yeah. So, any of the listeners that are not over 30 will have no idea what we're talking well, about. <laughs> well, 30, that's, that's a very conservative number, sure. Let's go 30. Let's go 30. Because yes. I'm very low with that. Yeah. <laughs> but believe me, they're real and you can go and see them in the museums now. So <laughs> copy machines were brought in to replace those. And what they found was um, that secretaries, which um, as uh, gender bias as that sounds, that's what it was at the time, would stand in front of these machines kind of going, well, I know how to use the old one, but this new technology, I've got no how, I don't know how to work it. And so there would be massive queues. And so the productivity that they were hoping to gain out of the machine actually didn't eventuate because people couldn't orientate themselves and didn't know what they were doing. So the anthropological recommendation back to the company was just make that button green. So it's like a traffic light. So when you're good to go, hit that and everything will automate. You don't need to do anything. That's the whole point of having one of these amazing machines. Sounds like the origin of uh, user experience testing. (laughs) It absolutely is. And it is almost the origin of customer centricity and design. Um, Human-centered design, that type of thing. Yeah, exactly. It came out of ethnography, which is a core core skill set in anthropology is, is 
watching people's behaviors and belief systems in action and capturing them and then trying to mm. unpack them and share them with others. Wow. And in terms of your day-to-day, what does a week in the life of Michael Henderson look like in the corporate anthropology space? Currently, it's probably 25% research. Right. So always trying to position ourselves probably two to three years ahead of where the market actually is. And the need for that is increasingly important because the only thing currently changing faster than the advent of technology in society is actual cultural norms. Yeah. So for the first time in my lifetime, cultural norms are changing quicker than technology is. And so a really big part, hence the the exploration of quantum anthropology is starting to look at, well, if we're moving this quickly, I really need to be positioning myself ahead of the curve so that when clients come to me with issues in two years' time, I'm not starting from scratch. Right. I can kind of go, actually, yeah, I've started to have a look at that. Let's kind of talk and see what right. we've got. Are you able to provide a bit of an example? What, what, when you say cultural norms are changing faster than tech, Mm. Can you provide a contrast? So it just gives a a sense of getting my head around what you mean by that. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, really obvious ones were the gender equality kind of movement. Mm -hmm. And not, I mean, obviously that's been around since the 19th century. But in terms of its impact and implications in business where society is actually not just acknowledging it and commenting on it or maybe even politicizing it it's actually responding to it you know so businesses in particular having to adjust employment contracts how they advertise for roles leaders and managers are being coached and trained how to embrace diversity within the workplace in a fair so there's that Uh, another example would be the hybrid workplace where uh, populations now are working from home as much as they're working so that changes some of the cultural dynamics that human beings work with where suddenly work is home and home is work and unless you've been self-employed and running your business from home that's a new phenomenon yeah um so there's a couple of mm. and how is tech lagging in those instances how is it behind it's not that tech's lagging tech right. evolved really rapidly. i mean artificial intelligence is sure. a really good example isn't it yeah where two to three months time will be the first anniversary of the real kind of explosion of artificial intelligence into everybody's grasp yeah so within 12 months, if you look at what artificial intelligence has already offered and already suggested as possible, it's a radical transformation. So technology is not slowing down. All I'm suggesting is for, for the first time, human cultural norms are actually even outpacing that. Wow. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. And I I'm, and I'm wonder whether in terms of your example of AI, what comes to my mind is in terms of cultural norms is the flushing out of many biases within the AI algorithms themselves that suggest Mm. that, yes, cultural norms are actually ahead of it in in Mm -hmm. that we can at least identify those potential unconscious biases that live in the code. Is that a a similar or analogous type of contrast? Yeah, it is. It is. And I'm actually playing on that quite a bit. I'm doing Mm. a a keynote tomorrow to a a board group and kind of still actually playing with the uh, letters AI, but I'm talking about it as anthropological intelligence. Ooh. And yeah. It's a nice (laughs) coinage. Trademark. Trademark. Yeah, right. And it's really just saying, look, everyone's getting all excited about the, the algorithm. Yes. There's another element of intelligence that we don't want to overlook. That, that potentially has got as much, if not more, to offer, depending on how far you want to go into it. And that I think if we neglect that or overlook that, it could be to our detriment. Yeah. And so, and that's, you know, that's not a unique viewpoint at all. If you've heard any concern around artificial intelligence and ethics, et cetera, yes. that's exactly what they're speaking to. What I'm suggesting is that understanding the anthropology of being human. Maybe I should quickly comment to that. Anthropology is a Greek word. So anthro means human and ology is the knowledge of or just the study of. So if you've ever heard the phrase philanthropist, somebody that does good or so phil is Greek for love and anthro is human as Mm. an anthropologist. So a philanthropist is literally just a lover of humanity and is prepared to do the time or contributions of finance, whatever it happens to be. Right. In contrast to a misanthropist. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, exactly. 
So, I'm looking so, at it right now. By oh, the way. <laughs> what? Gave yeah. myself away. So the whole work that we're involved in is really trying to help organizations start to pay attention to what the role of culture is within their structure and within their daily lives. Yeah. Because my 40 years of experience suggests to me that that, that understanding is incredibly limited. And that's not business people's fault. They don't get taught it in their MBAs. They don't get taught it in the leadership um, institutes and programs that they participate in. The experience you have being inside a corporate culture is not something that is focused on results and return on investment and shareholder return, et cetera, are where the real energy and focus is. And then strategy because of that. So culture kind of gets left out a little bit. And what I'm sort of suggesting is you just can't afford to run a business and not be paying attention to this anymore because on the outside, culture is moving faster than your business is. So literally, literally understanding customer needs and wants and desires and expectations from you. If you don't have some anthropology understanding, you're going to miss out. So the organizations that can respond not just first, but most effectively to human needs are going to be the ones that are well-received in the marketplace. And then at the same time, as we just alluded to earlier, we've got all sorts of cultural issues and challenges and opportunities emerging inside the business with expectations around diversity and yeah. inclusion, um, hybrid workplaces, even learning opportunity, right? So what opportunities there to continue to learn inside a business almost at the same rate that you were doing at university before you graduated. And so right. going back to that old 80s concept of learning organizations is going, actually, if you're not a learning organization, you're probably going to be in trouble. So that means that the culture has to become a learning culture. I like it. What happens if, actually I have a couple of questions, on the external facing culture piece, right? You know, mm -hmm. organizations being able to respond effectively to changing culture and the needs of their customers. How tightly coupled is that capability to how your internal culture is configured? Well, I would suggest that the internal culture is the trigger for the degree to which you are genuinely committed to exploring the customer experience. Mm. So I can give you a really practical example of that. So often I have to explain to executive teams when they're sitting down to reformulate a strategy, for example, what they don't seem to understand is that their executive team culture or the strategic team's culture is actually a bigger influence on which strategy they design and choose and implement than the logic or the rationale of the strategy. Yeah, yeah. that would make sense. Yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. Yeah. Because the, 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 all the biases the, and everything. Well, yeah. that, that suggests well, there's a little bit of a chicken and egg conundrum here because earlier you talked about the way that human beings create culture. Yeah. But what you're suggesting here is that culture also shapes the decisions that we make. How do you reconcile those potential contrasts or even paradoxes? Well, that's a really insightful question because culture is subjective. Yeah. So the mere fact it's subjective means that it's, it's kind of not either or. It's, it's more a case of well, what's going on at your end of the conversation. Right. And, okay, that's good. Here's what's going on on my end of the conversation. Kerry, how are you feeling? Yeah. I see. Where does that leave us? Yeah. So it's very dynamic. It's very fluid. And all we're really trying to do is enable organizations to participate in the cultures that they have, but at the same time see it. And so we, we refer to culture in the early stages of working with the organization as what we call the elusive obvious, right? So it's obvious that you've got a culture yes, yeah. because you do. You've got more than three human beings working here. And at the same time, every time we've asked you about it, you seem to be struggling to articulate it. So about a month ago, I had a really, really highlighted this for me. I had a, a call with a prospective client who we've ended up not working with, and that's good. I think that's a mutually good decision. But what was interesting was I said, oh, can you – can you maybe describe a little bit to me about your culture? And she said, yes, of course, it's uh, it's good. <laughs> that was the end of the conversation. Yes, right. And I, I, I just, yeah, I just sat there going, okay. oh, well, that's it. That's right? done. Huh? So I, yeah, so I had to go back and go, oh, okay, thank you. Well, you know, congratulations. Good's better than bad. <laughs> Do you mind if I just ask good for what? Yes. 
They're just uh, done. Good for what? <laughs> yeah, well, I get. And then she said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, what's the culture expected to do? You know, if you've got a good culture, what's it doing for you? Yeah. And so she, she responded to that and did her best with that. And said, okay, that's great. And then I said, so in the happening of that, good for who? And again, she went, I'm not quite sure what you mean. I said, well, is that good for your customers? She goes, oh, yes, of course. I said, okay, what's it like for your people who have got to do that for your customers? She goes, oh, well, it's funny you should mention that. We've been having a few grumblings and we've had a few resignations recently. Mm. So that's that's what I mean where what I find is organizations have a fixation on measurement. Yes. So in other words, if they can't measure anything, they don't believe it exists, yeah. right? If it's, not, if it's not measurable, it's imaginable. Mm. And we spend a lot of time helping and you, you really have to hold their hand and take them through it because it's such a big leap of understanding for them. But we have to take them on this journey to go, culture isn't measurable, it's meaningful. And so what I mean by that is if I asked you both and your listeners now to think about something in your life that you absolutely adore. Now, Paul, it might be the white wine that you were uh, drinking earlier, right? I want to tell you, it is, it is good. amazing. There we go. <laughs> like the product. That's it. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, Kerry, you were talking about um, your wife and, and before we got started, just saying. And so I did if you say that I adored her. That's right. That's right. I did. You did. Baby, I even think you said, I like, I love her more than this wine. I think you said that. <laughs> Quote. I think I heard you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Just imagine or picture or bring to mind something that you absolutely adore, or, or let's use this even stronger word, you, you completely know that you're in love with. Yeah. Right. Pet could be friend, doesn't matter. And then I said, now that you've kind of just put your attention on that, how meaningful is that for you? And the answer is going to be, well, pretty meaningful, right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> pretty full on. That's, that's as, yeah, that's as big as it's going to get for me. So great. So if we needed to go to court tomorrow to prove that, how are you going to measure it? How are you going to explain to the jury? This is how much, right? And this is what, this is where you suddenly hit the wall where the measurement bias that organizations carry for everything. And, and I understand why they do, because they've got, you know, shareholders and boards and they get reported on. So they, they measure everything that enables them to report on that, as as my organization does. What I'm saying is culture doesn't fit into that category. Yeah. And so hence you see there's a distinction between meaning and measurement. But if you look at the number of organizations that think they're measuring their culture through an engagement survey or a culture survey, for example, and they literally use statistics to explain what the culture's like. And I kind of just sit there scratching my head going, wow, that's it's such a missed opportunity because meaning is so much more powerful as a motivator and an attractive field and a compelling reason to contribute and belong and serve than a statistic is. Sure. No, but aren't you will. then hitting, a, to your point about hitting a wall, you're asking organizations to grasp the ungraspable, so to speak. So how do they then articulate it and embody it? And, and how do you get yeah. leaders to represent that outward, right? Yeah. Because that's, yeah. you know, what we're, you know, you, you've got to, they've got to explain to the rest of the people, you know, why we're doing these things, what we're doing, what it's helping, all yeah. those kind of things as well. Well, that's a lovely way of putting it, Kerry. So if we take, if we take a really common example, in fact, there's again, another topic I'm talking about tomorrow. Many organizations talk about culture. So this is the way they sort of describe it. So they might say something like culture is the way we do things around here. Oh, Which sounds really impressive, right? You go, oh, okay, that's good. Yeah. And it's a very common refrain. Yeah. Very, very, <laughs> very common. And so from an anthropology point of view, you kind of go, yeah, it includes some of the way you do things around here. But perhaps more accurately, if you actually understand the anthropology of culture, a better way of describing it is why we do things this way around here. Gotcha. So the way we do things around here, I can go into a business tomorrow and have a look at it and go, well, the way you do things around here is pretty average, right? It's right, pretty yeah. disappointing and in some <laughs> cases even pretty dangerous. Is that it's also a common refrain. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and so what we're more interested in is when we go in somewhere and we see it's average, it's kind of go, so why – why are people settling for average? Why is there not an awareness, a greater level of awareness, or to your point, carry a greater level of leadership presence mm. or self-awareness from the employees to realize, yeah, this isn't us at our best. Yeah. And so a big part of the work is 
and it's subtle work, but is actually teaching business people how to learning how to see, to your point, Paul, the invisible. Right. And that's kind of the whole art and science of anthropology is learning how do you actually start to make sense of something that is almost by definition intangible. You know, and I'll have to say that disclosure, like yes. when you disclose, this, disclose yes, away, my friend. You know, I've, I've had an opportunity to work with some of what Michael has done in the past, and it is interesting trying to understand what's happening when it's happening. Yes, but I'd say, and this is just from personal experience, just having the focus on it was a big. It was a big improvement. It was a big mm. change in how we treated each other and what we talked about with each other and how we did conversation totally. back and forth. Because I think before we just didn't have a focus on, you know, what culture was and, and, and why it existed and why we were worried about it. Because all we did was that NPR, you know, the yeah. surveys. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> that was all we focused on before. So it is something, I think, to just have people start to look at the intangible. Totally agree. And I think also the, the opportunity to bring people together, it's like the blind person's kind of trying to work out the elephant, you know, and describing the elephant from different mm -hmm. parts of mm -hmm. its body and, and so forth. It's going to feel different to many people, but you bring ev everybody together, you might not get an absolute shape. Yeah. But you'll get closer, yes. I imagine. Yeah. Plus, I would have thought you're also creating a shared language. Mm -hmm. Way uh, yeah. Creating different ways of articulating that may or may not work. Opportunities to explore and experiment to be able mm -hmm. to arrive at a point and say, look, at least at this point in time, this is what this means to us and mm -hmm. generate and create meaning together. Yeah. So I could see, I'm a, I'm a big belief, believer in that. Yeah. I think I'm, yeah. I'm a big fan. But mm -hmm. what I am interested in, Michael, and I, and I wonder whether it's something that you are often aware of is, you know, you, you've said in, the, in your example, you go into a culture and you see that they're average. How do you make that determination? Because it suggests to me that you come in with at least some sense of what good might look like. Yeah, and that, Paul, that's a really good question because um, one of the key things we get trained in anthropology, I guess like psychologists, is to be non-judgmental. Yeah. Right, so, so when we go into a, an indigenous environment or a traditional environment potentially, we're not there to kind of go, oh, yeah, that tribe's average. Right? It, it's more a case of going, who is this tribe? Mm. What do they believe in? What do they stand for? What? Whereas in business, and because I've been doing it for so long, we do know what good looks like. Right. And yeah. so if I go into a sales environment, I know, I know when I'm in a high-performing sales environment almost within minutes. Wow. And in sports teams as well, you, you, there's an there's a absolute vibe and there's mm. there's a very vague word, right? Vibe. Yes, absolutely. Well, how how do we measure the vibe, Mike? Right? <laughs> you know, my whole point is, you can't measure it, but when you walk in there, you'll feel it. It'll be undeniable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would argue that you feel it because you've been there. You've you've done your ten thousand hours, so to speak, as mm -hmm. and as Ericsson would say, you you would feel it. You would know it because of your expertise and experience. I'm not sure. Would would it be evident to everybody? It is if you're human. And and I get how ridiculous. Okay, that that's very. It's a very exact, broad category. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's, and it's exactly what Kerry just said before. If I were to say to you, if you had a cup of tea mm -hmm. right next to you, and it was hot, so it was still hot from the boiling water you poured into it, and it asked you just to place your hand above the cup and almost bounce the air with your hand, like you'd be bouncing yeah. a ball, but bounce the air and just ask if you, can you feel resistance? Can you feel like a cushion? Right. There's like a very, very subtle resistance yes. to mm. that. And you go, oh, yeah, is, is that always there? And you go, well, yes, it is. It's, oh, that's really interesting. So now, now put your hand over my mug, right, my cup of tea as well, and do the same. And you do it again. You go, oh, you've got more resistance in your cup. And you go, yeah, I have. Do you know why? They go, no, so mine's got three sugars in it. Oh. So the fluid is more dense. And if you talk to anybody that's a martial artist or Tai Chi or does body work, if they were listening to this, they go, yeah, absolutely, I do that all the time. You know, I have to make, you know, my wife and I a cup of tea, put it down and go, oh, I can't remember which one to put the sugar in. You bounce your hand over the top and then you go, oh, it's that one. 
Wow. I did not know. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm writing this down too. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's become a chemistry lesson. This is great. Yeah. And so the anthropology of culture is you just learn. Yeah. And things like that, we teach you what to look for. But very quickly, I can get a manager to walk into a room, right, and go, what did you notice? And they'll give you some feedback. I said, great. So you noticed a cup of tea on the table. I said, yeah, okay. Anything else? Well, no. I said, okay, good. But then if I show them how to do what I've just said with the hand, for example, then come out and go, what did you notice? I said, well, there was two cups of tea and one of them had denser air than the other. I go, yeah. So in the context of your team and what you're trying to achieve as performance output, which works better for you, lighter air or denser air? And then they go, well, absolutely lighter. Density slows us down. Density costs us time and money and effort. Density leads to fatigue and accidents. Oh, great. Okay. So back to your point earlier, Paul, I don't necessarily go in there knowing what good is. It's always in dialogue with the client, but I can spot the differences and help them differences and then go partner with them to go, so remind me again, what are you trying to do? And then you go serve customers and go, great. So can you see how ignoring customers isn't helping you with that? Yeah. Can you see how interrupting the customer or swearing at them or making a promise and then breaking it immediately? So it gets really almost it almost becomes embarrassingly simple once you become once you we call it tuned in. Once you've yes. tuned into culture, it's almost like is it the Matrix where you take the pill and then you see it? Yes, yes, that's <laughs> right. the one. Is and the blue or the red pill? I, I can't, can't remember. remember. Yeah, I can, yeah. I, that's why I didn't think of some story. <laughs> it's a little bit like that where. We regularly get feedback saying, gosh, it's like I had a veil taken off my eyes. Yes. And now I can't I can't unsee culture everywhere I go. Every yeah. movie I watch, every party I attend, every meeting I attend, you suddenly start to see aspects of being human that you just weren't paying attention to before. It's a little bit like doing defensive driving. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Would it be true to say then that some of the first things you might do when you walk into an organization is work with people so that they learn to notice? Yeah, it's exactly what we do. In fact, I used to, if I went back 20 years ago, I would just go in, do the consulting, do the work, write a report, make the recommendations and get out. And what I started to realize was that's actually not ethical or even helpful because they would then go and act on my recommendations. Two years later, there'd be a change in context or dynamics. And so they'd have another issue and then they had to call me back again. And so I thought, that's not culturing. Mm. Culturing is when you have a fully informed, comprehensive understanding of culturing as a process for human beings. And as a human being, you do. And so we switched the whole focus of what we were doing, which turned out to be smart from a business point of view, but it wasn't my intention uh, because it gave us a really niche offering in the marketplace where we are fundamentally famous now for teaching organizations how to see and work with culture, not measure it or intervene it or but see it and intervene with it and become accountable and agents of it within the organization. Sorry, KG, I know that I'm hogging all the uh, questions. I love it because you said that I was going to do the heavy lifting. Yeah. You've done it. <laughs> <laughs> that was your ruse That's from it. the beginning. I That's see what you've right. done there. That's right. Serve it up, <laughs> man. Serve it, it up. Explains for why Kerry's on his third glass of wine. And you're <laughs> <only hungry. laughs> this is Good true. spotting. Good spotting. No, I just true. find this. I just find this so engaging, Michael. So I'm, I'm really grateful that you're taking the time to explain this to oh, us. Thank you. This is really getting me going. One thing that I am curious also about is that you mentioned the organization. There's an assumption perhaps in some of our language that the organization is some form of entity. We anthropomorphize it, right, Mm -hmm. and give it human-like qualities. But I'm wondering, where do you target your work mostly? Is it uh, within a particular hierarchy or structure? Do you work top-down, bottom-up, a bit bit of both? Or where does leadership sit in that type of work for you? Yeah, it's a good question again, Paul. You're doing good, Paul. Yeah, right. Some some of the questions are really insightful. <laughs> Business leadership is typically actually maybe maybe I can explain this another way because it might be kind of more stimulating for your listeners if that's all right. Yeah, totally. If I get you to picture in your mind a symbol, a shape, like a geometric shape that most regularly is associated with the structure of an organization, what shape comes to mind? Triangle. Triangle. 
Yeah, trying to break. <laughs> boom, boom, good. Snap. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if I say to you, okay, yeah, I, I 100% agree with you. Uh, in my whole career, that's the most common way I've seen it presented, discussed, referred to, language invertedly as well. Then I'm going to ask you, and within that triangle, where is leadership best positioned to be understood where leadership occurs and takes place and operates from within the triangle? Ooh, that's harder. <laughs> well, the obvious. I have an, I have an ideology around that. Yes. So, yeah, um, not the ideology. Again, this, is, this is the anthropology. Okay. If you just don't observe what is, where do you find it? At the top. Yeah. So that can be symbolically where you go in and there's literally a pyramid diagram of the structure of the organization. Yes. A flow diagram. Or it can be linguistically where the titlement Right? There's more respect or more deference given to somebody with title right? Right. because they are a pyramid and on and on and on. They get the yes. parking spots, they get corner office, they, right, whatever it happens to be. So here we go. If I then said to you, now to, having done that, and thank you for indulging me, if I were now to ask you to choose a shape, even if you've never spent time in an indigenous environment, choose a shape or a symbol, just as you did before with the triangle, that you believe probably best represents the structure of an indigenous culture, what shape would come to mind? Circle. Circle. Right. And that's the most common answer. And again, if we said great, and without your own sort of philosophy, but if you just imagine, where would you position leadership? Center. Center. That distinction is quite an important one to make because what we find is in business, to answer your sort of question, Paul, is leadership typically is at the top and functions at the top, like literally functions at the top. And yet within culture, the organization's culture, the business leaders aren't necessarily leading the business culture. Mm. Yeah. The person that actually leads the organization or the team or the department or the branch's culture is not necessarily the leader of the business. They're the most centrally approachable person within that organization. So that the person that is considered to be the most trustworthy, the most honorable in terms of you tell them a secret, they'll honor the secret, who will be respectful for you. So whoever that person ends up being, they are leading the culture. And so often, to your point earlier, people said, oh, you know, if you come to the uh, culture work, I assume we'll be starting with the leadership team as they're leading culture. And I went, whoa, 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 hang on a minute. <laughs> no, we will be working with the leadership team, but it's not because they're leading culture. It's because they're following culture. and they need to be able to understand how that dynamic is working if they're going to effectively align the culture as a strategic asset for the business. I'm thinking you'd need some sort of – sorry, my brain is once again <laughs> exploding. Sorry. <laughs> this circle analogy, mm-hmm. I'm assuming within organisations, and I don't, I, can't, I don't know about Indigenous cultures, but in an organisation there is no one centre that holds the culture, I'm assuming. Correct. And therefore, you have multiple circles that may or may not overlap yeah, correct. throughout an organization. Is that right? Yeah. That suggests then that to your earlier point about the fluidity of culture, it's kind of always moving. Maybe mm-hmm. I can imagine the circles growing and shrinking. Mm-hmm. In real overlapping. T- yeah, overlapping in yeah. real time, moving around, Burting. jostling for position, so to speak. How do you work with that? How do leaders even begin to understand what's happening in their organization with that level of volatility. Yeah. You asked a question a couple of minutes ago was, you know, when you go into an organization, how do you work? What's the first thing you do? And you said, is it top down, bottom up? So yes, it's top down and it's bottom up. Right. More specifically, <laughs> more specifically, it's, um, I don't know if you come across this phrase, organizations are addicted to this kind of focus on thing, a thing called ways of working. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. Yes. which is how they how they structure workflows, and especially in hybrid, and it's it's a very sensible kind of focal point with the world changing the way it is. What we're doing is we're kind of I guess targeting the layer deeper than that, which is what we call ways of thinking. Right, and so the first thing we're interested in is going into organisations and observing and noting what is the dominant thinking pattern for the organisation. Okay, it's almost like if you're brain was a necktop computer, right? So you've got a necktop computer. We're basically saying, what's the dominant software? And for organizations, it's always embedded in the language. So you just pick it up very, very quickly. So this is another way, Paul, of identifying the cultures. If you listen to the language, it reveals the belief systems sitting behind the language. So organization, right, means to organize. Why do we want to organize? Well, if we organize, then we're in control. And if we're in control, then we can manage. And if we can manage, then we can monitor and measure and progress cost control, speed, quality. So in other words, 
we get to manage costs, look at revenue, manage the cost in relation to the revenue, and we make profit. Totally makes sense, right? It's going, yeah, why wouldn't you do that? That sounds very good. And again, my organization does exactly that. Whereas the way you would need to think to become superbly good at that and master it is called binary thinking, which is there's a cause and there's effect. This will lead to that. Mm. So it's literally from the industrial revolution, the production line. If we do this at this stage and we do that, then that goes to here. So it's sequential thinking, linear thinking. Whereas if you pull your head out of a business, right, and go for a walk in the park, same person, you were, you know, head of a production line in the factory two minutes ago, and now you've gone out for a lunch break and you're walking through the park and you're enjoying nature and having a sandwich and a glass of your wine. Immediately, it's no, it's not linear anymore. It's inclusive, right? It's holistic. So it's even non-linear mm. or emergent. Yeah. So what we have to do a lot of the time is go into organizations and support them and say, look, congratulations, you've got PhD in binary thinking. Yeah. You're amazing at it. Genius. Love it. What we'd like to do is expand your vocabulary because at the moment it's like you're trying to eat a four-course meal, but you've only got two pieces of cutlery. You've got a knife and a fork, which is great for the main meal, but not much use with the entree being soup and the dessert being something you need a spoon for. Mm. Tiramisu, right? So what we're sort of saying is what we want to do is we want to bring in an additional way of thinking that enables you to now start to add an understanding, appreciation and opportunity to involve culture in your organizing on the understanding that it's largely unorganized. Yeah, that makes sense in that if you circle back to some of your first comments around culture norms moving faster than technology, for example, the possibility that culture moves that fast suggests levels of complexity that are just beyond linear thinking. 100%. And therefore, I can't simply attribute a cause to any one effect or vice versa. No. It, it's, no. it's multivariable. It's, sometimes it's unknowable. Yeah. The opportunity to build that skill of thinking mm -hmm. tells me that it gives people an opportunity to at least try and keep up with cultural norms, <laughs> yeah, if nothing else. Yeah. And, and the fact that, you know, you go in and you try to help them identify these things as they're happening. At least there's an opportunity to see those shifts and moves and changing of shapes. They might not know yeah. exactly what to do, but they understand that it's happening. And I think that in itself gives people better language, better opportunity to start to adjust to it and respond to it mm. and even be ahead of it in some cases, which is yeah. good. Absolutely, Kerry. Uh, like one of the big breakthroughs you get very, very quickly when people start to appreciate what we're talking about is they ask better questions yeah. almost immediately. Yeah, like you, Paul. Uh, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> well, uh, Michael just touched the uh, just touched a nerve good. and just just well, energized me. Actually, actually, Paul, that Kerry's absolutely right. That's the whole point of anthropology. So I did particularly well academically in anthropology. And all my other subjects I was studying, I was studying philosophy and political science and history and a bunch of other things at uni as well. And I was a, not a good student, like just, just right. not doing well. And so I went to see my anthropology professor and said, I, can you help me out here? Because I'm like an A plus student in this subject and everything else is like C and C minus and I'm struggling. What's going on? And he said, oh, it's, it's really, really simple. He said, you're ignorant. Fair enough. <laughs> right. Thanks for that. And I went, uh, I'm assuming that's going to be helpful to understand. And he said, yeah. He said, ignorant doesn't mean stupid. It means ignorant. Yes. So he said, what you have done so particularly well with anthropology, he says, and by the way, I suspect you could be a very good anthropologist if you stay at it because of this, he said, is you're very, very aware of what you don't know. Mm. So if you heard that, you know, that expression is, how can we know what we don't know? <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, when it comes to culture, you have to know what you don't know. So when we do learning programs for organizations, the very, very, very first exercise we do, I kind of almost kind of start the whole thing going, hi, I'm Michael, explain why we're here. It's what we've been brought in to do. We'll be partnering together, but ignore all that. Let's just get into an exercise, get into groups. What you want to do, you've got three minutes. Tell me everything you don't know about culture as fast as you possibly can. And groups struggle with it. They, they're kind of going, sorry, did I hear the question right? Did you say what we know about culture? Did, no, no, what you don't know about culture. Yeah, yeah that's sort of, okay. Oh, uh, and so for the first 30, 40 seconds, you can see them go into discombobulation. Mm. Their not brain down, just doesn't. Down. I'd love <laughs> yeah. to see that. I love that yeah, moment. It's, it, it's fascinating. Yes. And so what we're really looking for is they start to go, well, uh, I guess I don't know what it actually is. I say, great. Good, right? So what's your question? Well, what is culture? Okay, let's start with that. 
And that's all it is. So it's it's just allowing the not knowing to lead you yeah. in a very, very organic way, not organized. So this is, mm. again, is not like organization in a very organic way, which is going, well, now we understand what culture is. That tells us what we can do with it. So great. Yes. What do you want to do with it? Yeah. Now we know what culture is. We can see who it involves. Great. So involve them. Yes. And there's a level of curiosity that is required. And in my experience, people assume that curiosity is somehow organic and it's self-cultivating. But I do think curiosity needs a level of curation, maybe, if that's the right word. Yeah, I I agree. I think you can manufacture curiosity, actually. Mm. Uh, So we've done some experiments on this. So one of the the ways that often works for organisations is we basically use a term called urgent curiosity. Right. It's basically saying to people when they're learning – and particularly the more left brain, the more logical, rational right, they are, we encourage them to find, find something urgent about learning this. So imagine if you don't learn this, you lose your job. Right? If, you, if you go through this cultural learning experience and it turns out you don't understand it, you're going to lose your job. Right? We're, not, we're not trying to operate on fear or that, but we're just sort of trying to get them to manufacture an urgent need to know. Yeah. And we just use that to get them started. And then once they start to going, well, what about and how come? And is it possible? We say, here you go. Now you're curious. So you don't have to drop the urgency. You're, you're underway. So it's just once they've got the momentum going. You just need then, a spark. Yeah. 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 Apologies, gentlemen. I've got uh, I've got a class starting in about oh. ten minutes, so I've got about I've got about four or four or five more minutes max to go. If that's this right. has been so it's rewarding, so and it's been lovely to talk to you, Michael. I'd love to get you back on and just keep talking <laughs> for days. Yeah, for days and days and days. Thank you for generously offering your time with That's us. Pleasure. It's been fantastic for yeah. me. And KG, what do you think? I'm blown away. I mean, it's it's been a, a great conversation, but more than that, it's given us so much more to think about, which it is has. Always. And interestingly <laughs> for me, what you've really done is painted a, an entire sort of canvas of culture without necessarily us having to feel like we have to focus on a particular part of the canvas. It's kind of all there open for us to have a look at. Yeah, really good. Yeah. And I really enjoy that. And maybe next time we talk, KG and I can formulate some more pointed questions around culture and the leadership process around that because it, I have many, many more questions, Michael. Many more. <laughs> well, you'd probably make a very good anthropologist then, Paul. But that, <laughs> that's that, what it's that, leading to, yes. Honestly, that's all it is. When you when you go into a, an indigenous environment, right? Yes. the whole point is to arrive there knowing nothing. That's right. And then let the culture reveal itself to you at the level that your curiosity can handle yeah. and respond accordingly with questions. Why do you do that? What's that for? How often do you do that? Why has that happened before this happens? What does this mean? I'll start looking for university courses with think, KG. <laughs> yeah, I can see it. Yeah. <laughs> Look, and on that on that note, Michael, once again, thank you from me. And KG, really appreciate so, you. And Slauncher to you Slauncher. and your work. Yes. Thank yes. you. Thank you both so much. All it's right. been a real delight. Take right. care, man. Thanks for that. Thank Michael. you both. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye bye. That's it for our show today. If you liked what you heard, if you liked our conversation, if you want to hear more, please rate us, review us, subscribe. Tell your friends, your family, your enemies, everyone you know. As always, we'd like to hear your feedback about any particular leadership topic you'd like to hear about or want us to explore. Please let us know by reaching out to us at askusatleadershipdecanted.com. That's A-S-K-U-S at leadershipdecanted.com. You can also leave your comments and suggestions at our website at leadershipdecanted.com. We really appreciate your time and comments. Thanks for listening and come back next time.